This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, Sweden, and welcome to episode 37 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. But on this episode, we'll be discussing the somewhat controversial Davis Aerodrome, which is a proposal pretty far into the planning process, as a matter of fact, of building a 2.7-kilometer airstrip in the ice-free Vestfold Hills in eastern Antarctica, near the Australian Davis Station. Also calls for building uh, quite a bit of associated infrastructure, fuel storage tanks, hangars, and uh, so forth. It's quite a controversial issue. It's been criticized by many on environmental grounds, as well as for the risk of initiating a sort of infrastructure building race that could also erode uh, parts of the uh, Antarctic Treaty system and also cause some potentially problematic outcomes in the long run. And joining me to discuss this issue, we have on the phone line from Hobart, the gateway city of Hobart, Australia, Jeffrey McGee, Associate Professor in Climate Change, Marine and Antarctic Law at the University of Tasmania. So, Jeff, uh, thanks again for uh, joining us uh, for a second time here on the Polar Geopolitics podcast. Thanks, Eric, and uh, good evening to everybody out there. All right, so, Jeff, now you've come out very much in favor of the Davis Aerodrome. You and some colleagues have written some articles, some reports, uh, laying out uh, the reasons why you think this is a worthwhile project, good for Australia, good for Antarctica in general. So perhaps you could build upon some of just the the very basic facts that I gave there in the introduction and uh, tell us what this project is about and why you are so much in support of it. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I guess the main point that we were making in that that article is that, yeah, aside from environmental concerns that had been aired by a number of different commentators up to this point, there there were there was another side of the coin. There, there were other arguments based on national interest grounds that might be put, and that, so that's what we sought to do in that piece for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Um, a few months ago, because I think it was fair to say that up until that point in the in the public debate on this issue, there'd really only been negative pieces, and and most of it was environmental criticism. And the trouble with with that that material is that most of it, or in fact all of it, was coming before any environmental impact assessment had actually been done of the project. So in in a lot of ways. Um, the way we viewed it, um, the, the environmental criticism was coming uh, way too early in the sense that it was putting the cart before the horse. The The project hadn't yet been environmentally assessed, yet there was this uh, very strident sort of environmental critique. Our intention was to say, hold on, there are other considerations aside from environmental, which you know, need to, of course, be looked at. Um, there are other considerations. And, and what's more, we need to actually wait until the environmental assessments are done before we actually take a position in relation to the environmental issue. Okay, and since that time, have I mean, you mentioned these criticisms? They've been building up, I guess, for a couple of years now. I guess the project was announced was it twenty eighteen, and since then, it's been criticized by well, mostly environmental grounds, as you uh, as you point out. Have any environmental studies been conducted or completed at this point? Look, the, the only um, environmental evaluations that have been done under the Madrid Protocol so far have, have been initial environmental evaluations or IEEs that have been um, filed by Australia 
under the Madrid Protocol with the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat, and they're available to be looked at on the uh, Secretariat website. But these only relate to preparatory works, such as, you know, doing, say, geotechnical investigations where, you know, some holes might be drilled down into the rock to see what's beneath. So they're, they're only activities that have a, a minor and transitory impact. So under the Madrid Protocol, only an, an, an initial environmental evaluation is required. And Australia has best practice in the sense that they actually file their IEEs with the Secretariat in English so that anyone can look at them. Many other countries um, take the view that they don't file IEEs, but Australia does. So they're on the Antarctic Secretariat website and can be looked at. So, so I guess the short answer is, uh, Eric, it's only in environmental evaluations for minor preparatory work so far. And that's all that's been required so far. So required under the uh, Madrid Protocol of the Antarctic Treaty System. Also, there's uh, Australian law, Australian national law at play as well, right? Yeah, that's right. But aside from those initial IEEs, which are for the preparatory work, um, the actual um, main environmental assessment is the CEE or Comprehensive Environmental Evaluation, which is again prepared under the Madrid Protocol obligations that Australia has. And, and this is the proper, you know, full bottle um, environmental evaluation that needs to be prepared by Australia and needs to be, uh, you know, filed with the Committee for Environmental Protection under the Madrid Protocol and considered by the committee and by other countries within the protocol. So that um, has to occur. And the actual preparation of that CEE, as you, as you just mentioned, is uh, within Australia facilitated and governed by domestic legislation. So there's two pieces of domestic legislation in Australia that are relevant here. There's the um, ATEP Act, which is the Antarctic Treaty Environmental Protection Act, which essentially sets up a, a mechanism or a process, a legislative requirement here in Australia for the preparation of a comprehensive environmental evaluation where anything that's done in Antarctica is going to have more than a minor or transitory impact. Okay, so there's that piece of legislation, the ATEP Act, and there's also another piece of legislation called the EPBC Act or the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is a piece of national environmental legislation here in Australia that applies to all sorts of at large um, uh, activities here in Australia, whether it's building wharves or it might be building, say, coal mines or it might be building power stations, whatever the activity is, it usually is regulated under this EPBC Act where another stream of um, environmental assessment and evaluation needs to occur. So those two acts, the um, ATEP Act and the EPBC Act, in parallel require um, a very comprehensive and, and, and rigorous environmental evaluation respond to any Australian activity in Antarctica that is going to have more than a minor or transitory impact and would require a CEE be produced. So it's any activity by Australia in Antarctica. So whether that's on the Australian, Australian claimed area or whether it's on um, some other area, if Australia was doing something on in, in, in the area of some other claim, the ATEP Act would still require the same level of environmental evaluation be carried out. The EPBC Act applies because it's an Australian um, it's an Australian action by the Australian government, whether that be within on Australian territory or um, somewhere else. Again, the EPBC Act would apply if the Australian government is doing something. So the fact that it's actually on the Australian um, claimed area, you know, a part of the Australian Antarctic Territory, as it's, as it's known as, really isn't a 
a big issue here or significant issue in terms of whether this domestic legislation applies. Okay, so if we get back to, I mean, you mentioned before national interest, and I guess this this entire project is like any any big infrastructure project. I guess there's a cost benefit analysis going on, and this is complicated by the fact that this is not just purely um, Australia is not the only stakeholder in this. There's a, there's you could say all of humanity, all the other treaty uh, the the parties to the Antarctic Treaty system, and so forth. So it's quite uh, complex. But you say the environmental concerns are valid, but they aren't the only. They're not the only part of this equation. There's the national interest of Australia, the uh, the country behind this project. So perhaps you can you can talk to me a bit about this 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 weighing of interests, and particularly the national interest in Australia. What does Australia see as as the uh, advantages of going forward with this very um, very controversial, very expensive, very long term project? Look, one of the uh, one of, one of the key things um, here that it's often been said that you know science is the the currency of influence um, in the Antarctic Treaty System. I think it was um, Australian scientist Pat Quilty mentioned that um, in an article he published back in 1990 um, in a a booklet um, coming out of a conference here in Hobart. And I think it's a very good way of thinking about the the geopolitics of the Antarctic Treaty System is is very much bound up with scientific activity and, and and the generation of scientific knowledge. Now, the ability to um, have an all-year air link into East Antarctica supplied um, out of Hobart with flights going from Hobart into into this aerodrome and the ability not only to uh, supply the Australian Antarctic bases but also act as a a hub of um, supply for other countries' scientific research activity and, and bases in East Antarctica uh, will, will obviously, um, you know, be a significant position of of, of importance and influence um, in Antarctic science and Antarctic logistics for Australia moving forward. You know, for, from the 2035, 2040 period when this um, aerodrome would be operational if if it proceeds. So um, the ability to not only um, further uh, advance uh, the supply and logistic capability of the Australian, Australian Antarctic program, but also the Antarctic science programs of other key nations within East Antarctica, as I said, will put Australia in a, you know, arguably in a position of furthering its national interests in terms of its influence within the Antarctic Treaty system. So, you know, there's a, a, a specific and defined and tangible uh, diplomatic scientific benefit for Australia in, in perhaps proceeding with this project, despite the fact, as I said, that the environmental assessments need to be done. We need to look at what the environmental um, issues are very closely and how they might be mitigated and managed. But leaving those environmental issues to the side for, for, for the moment, there is a national interest consideration there that has to be taken into account. So you see some geopolitical upsides here in sort of enhancing Australia's position within the ATS. I mean, if we look at if we look once again from a perspective of a cost benefit analysis, do you see any any downsides, any geopolitical downsides of pushing forward with the, this controversial project? Look, there could there could be some, and I, I think um, you know you have to look at these things with um, with eyes wide open, uh, so, so to speak. Um, yeah, you know, one possibility um, that's been raised by some commentators already is. Is that um, you know if, if Australia chooses to you know do a major piece of transport and logistic infrastructure in East Antarctica, then it might be a, a signal to other countries to 
you know, perhaps uh, attempt similar types of um, infrastructure in, in other places. That, I guess, is a possibility. But uh, it has to be said, and I, I think we make this point in the ASPE piece, which um, myself and uh, Marcus Hayward and Anthony Bergen did, that that sort of consideration needs to be, I guess, balanced against the plausible future that if Australia chose not to proceed with the Davis Aerodrome, that nece- that doesn't necessarily take it off the table in terms of another country deciding to proceed with a similar uh, proposal in the Vestfold Hills area. So there's, you know, there's, there's risks each way here. You know, as, as, as you say, um, if Australia chooses to proceed, then it might send a send a signal to others that they uh, may, may wish to um, go down a path of um, of major infrastructure investment. But if Australia doesn't proceed, there's also a plausible um, future that one can see where another country may think, well, if Australia is not prepared to put in the money and show leadership to to build this sort of facility in East Antarctica, that they'll step into Australia's shoes and do it in any event. So. Yes, there's a number of different, I guess, competing geopolitical risks that need to be looked at here, Eric. So these Vestfold Hills, though, they're just, in some sense, from this interpretation, they're just waiting to be developed in some way. It's kind of a bit of a, um, I don't want to say cynical perspective, but um, that's perhaps a, maybe a geopolitical realistic perspective, seeing other interested parties and uh, in Australia perhaps trying to get a first mover advantage there. And of course, the the ones, the other countries that come to mind would be, I guess it could be any of the countries, it could be the United States and others, but it could as well, you know, the ones from an Australian perspective, the other competitors would be Australia in particular, or sorry, would be Russia and particularly China. And from what I understand, China has also made some indications that they are considering uh, building an airstrip perhaps someplace else. Of course, also uh, Australia's had some some geopolitical um, tensions perhaps uh, vis-a-vis uh, China with the, the Dome A site. Uh, how do you see that relationship in terms of this aerodrome project and infrastructure in Antarctica in general, the China-Australia relationship? Look, I, I guess the important thing here is to not, I guess not point the finger at China necessarily as being the um, the country that might proceed with um, with an aerodrome if Australia doesn't. The, the, the argument applies to as you, to a number of countries who could. Okay, so it's simply pointing out that if Australia chooses not to proceed, that doesn't take the side off the table in terms of future infrastructure development. It's I, th- I think we say in the art in the in the ASP piece that it's you know, prime real estate for for um, an airport um, for, for some going back um, four or five decades. Um, it was spoken about certainly within the Australian program as a possible site for an aerodrome at some point in the future. So it's it's uniquely situated for that in the sense that it's on rock, it's in a nice free area, the prevailing winds are favourable to, to an aerodrome being built in this position. So there aren't many sites like this in the Antarctic continent. It's almost unique in terms of its uh, positioning and attributes. So I think um, the, the wider sort of tensions between Australia and, and China in, in, in wider affairs, you know, sure, you know, those things have been going on the last sort of 18 months, but I, I don't think it's necessarily something that we, we need to sort of focus on on China here. It could, it could be, you know, Russia, of course, has a program, you know, in East Antarctica. It could be um, other countries that, um, that that wish to develop an air link into East Antarctica. So, so yeah, I, I, I think there's a number of possible, you know, plausible futures where you can see countries being interested in this, Eric. In terms of uh, Australian um, 
domestic politics. So what what is driving this? From what I've read, uh, there's the um, the director of the uh, Australian Antarctic Division, uh, Mr. Um, Kim Ellis, that is a, a very strong booster of this project. Is there is there different domestic political constituencies on either side of this issue that are that are wrestling over whether to move forward with this project? No, I, I wouldn't say say so, Eric. I, I think. Um, the um, it's got it's got little to do with um, you know who's the director of the Australian Antarctic Division at the, at the moment, or, or which side of politics is 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 in in government at the moment. Um, I mean this idea for a um, an aerodrome into East Antarctica at Davis was raised firstly in 20, 2016 in the Australian 20-Year Strategic Policy and Action Plan, uh, which was um, uh, released by the, the Turnbull government back in 2016. Um, so it's been on the on the table, you know, as a serious policy move by Australia for at least uh, five years. As I said, it's been spoken about, you know, um, within um, Australian Antarctic circles for some decades. And I think we say in the ASPE piece that, you know, it's it's, it's come up for semi-serious consideration um, a few times in the past, but without the political will and commitment and, and the money to, to want to go ahead with it. So I, w- I would look at that 2016 policy document from Australia as being the push for, for this most recent consideration of the proposal for a, um, an aerodrome at Davis. The uh, current government, uh, which is a, a liberal coalition conservative government, um, so, you know, seems um, certainly to be considering the issue. And but I, but I guess it'll you know come down to a funding decision that'll have to occur you know within the next couple of years as to whether um, Australia ultimately proceeds with this. But if uh, the Labor Party here have got into government type, I, I, I doubt whether the actual support for the for the project would differ significantly from what we're seeing now. Traditionally, here in Australia, uh, both the conservative liberal governments and the Labor governments have a fairly united, you know, cross-party position on Antarctic affairs. There's not a lot of, you know, domestic politicking around Antarctic issues. They both they're both fairly strong in terms of wanting to maintain Australia's interests uh, in Antarctica and support of the Antarctic Treaty system. So I, I wouldn't suspect there's a lot. The major sort of politics domestically here in Australia is is around, I guess, environmental groups. Um, there's been one or two that are already campaigning against the aerodrome proposal. Um, so it's more civil society action and, I guess, academic criticism, you know, um, from, you know, various people writing blog sites and, and opinion pieces. And in terms of uh, the domestic situation there and Hobart being one of the uh, handful of um, so-called Antarctic gateway cities and you being a Hobart resident, Jeff, um, what, what do you see as the... Uh, benefits for Hobart? I mean, you're already an Antarctic Gateway City. This would make you even more, perhaps uh, the foremost of the um, six or seven in the world. Do you see that as, as an important part of this calculation? Look, uh, I, I guess <laughs> um, as, a, as a, a recent Tasmanian, I've only been living down here six or seven years, years uh, Eric, um, I, you know, it's obvious that, um, you know, in terms of Australian and Antarctic affairs, Hobart is the centre of activity in terms of the science effort in, and also in terms of the logistic effort and the, the centre of the Antarctic, Australian Antarctic program. So, look, that, that's all true. And, um, you know, there is a, 
I guess, uh, a local economy of, of some description that centres around servicing the Antarctic uh, programs of not only Australia but other countries that come in here with ships and, and, and whatnot. So, look, you know, as far as Tasmania is concerned, there would be some there would be some economic activity that's generated out of the out of uh, the proposal going ahead. Um, I don't know exactly what those numbers would be and, and you know, whether they're um, hugely significant or not, but there would certainly be some upswing in um, economic benefits for, for Tasmania. And certainly it would um, strengthen the links between, you know, Hobart and the uh, Australian bases. I mean, at, at the moment, you know, Hobart's used as the air link between Australia and the Casey runway, the, the, the ice runway near Casey. Uh, base, it's only open three or four months of the year. It has to be closed for about five, four or six weeks in the middle of summer because it gets too sloppy, you know, because of the temperatures warming. And it's, so, you know, the, the air link from Hobart into the Australian bases at the moment is only short and is open to disruption due to the conditions of, of the runway uh, near Casey. So if this goes ahead and there's a year-round consistent uh, supply route for large aircraft to, to go into Davis and then to act Davis to act as that intra-continental hub of smaller flights into the other Australian bases, Casey and Mawson, and also to other bases um, of other programs in East Antarctica. You know, yes, you know, it will certainly stamp Hobart as you know being um, a centre, you know, of supply and logistic importance to Antarctica. In a similar way, I guess, to you know the South American cities um, in the in the south of Chile and Argentina, and, and their you know key sort of supply and logistical um, activities into the um, Argentinian, Chilean, and, and British bases um, uh, on the peninsula. So, yes, so there, there will certainly be some significant benefits for for Tasmania, but uh, but probably in the scheme of things, that's a yeah a, a relatively minor reason as to why this will proceed or not. I mean, you're a leading legal expert on the Antarctic Treaty system. Do you, do you see this as having any impact on not just the sort of the, the letter of the law, so to speak, but also the, the spirit of the ATS and maybe leading to some longer term outcomes that, that have basically contradict what that, uh, what that the treaty system is all about, uh, environmental stewardship, also potentially with more infrastructure, perhaps some nascent militarization, and perhaps even facilitating economic activities like larger-scale tourism and perhaps even mining somewhere down the line. Do you see this as opening some sort of Pandora's box within the the, uh, Antarctic Treaty system? Look, I I don't, Eric. And the, the the reason I say that is because the Antarctic Treaty has allowed the continent to be used for peaceful purposes and for scientific research. And the Madrid Protocol, of course, came after that in the early 1990s and set up systems of environmental protection, including environmental assessment. But when we look at Article 3 of the Madrid Protocol, it doesn't prohibit infrastructure being built if that infrastructure is being built to further science and, and further peaceful use of the continent. Okay, if we look at the environmental principles in Article 3, they effectively uh, don't place any prohibition in any way upon a, a development such as such as aerodromes. And in fact, you know, we have aerodromes over in West Antarctica with the you know, Rothera strip that the, the British operate and the uh, the Argentinian um, airstrip as well in, in West Antarctica. So there, there are already significant um, gravel runways already 
um, in Antarctica. So it's it's not as if aerodromes airports are meant to be somehow banned or prohibited under the, under the Madrid Protocol. It's it's a question of the environmental assessment procedures under the Madrid Protocol, the comprehensive environmental evaluation um, being rigorously applied, and the environmental impacts identified, the uh, strategies put in place to reduce, limit, mitigate those environmental impacts, and then looking at what the residual environmental impacts are and and I guess then weighing those against the benefits to science and the benefits to other peaceful use that would come from the facility. So it's not an all or nothing situation under the Madrid Protocol with infrastructure of, of this type. It's, it's a question of rigorous, detailed and well followed through and well, well acted upon um, environmental evaluation and then ultimately a weighing of the benefits that will come against whatever residual environmental impacts will occur. So I, in some ways, you know, it, if Australia does the environmental assessment, the comprehensive environmental evaluation extremely well, which is what I expect will occur, I think they'll, you know, really seek to produce a first-rate environmental evaluation of this proposal just because it is, you know, one of the largest infrastructure proposals that the continent's seen, it, it begets the most rigorous and the, and the most well put together comprehensive environmental evaluation. So that being the case, uh, so I think Australia will produce that. And in some ways in doing that and allowing the processes of the, of the Madrid Protocol to play out, that is for that um, environmental uh, evaluation to be filed with the Committee of Environmental Protection for the intersessional activities of the Committee for Environmental Protection to, you know, scrutinise and review that that CEE, provide feedback to Australia and and provide advice to the ATCM, which will then provide advice to Australia in relation to the the proposal. Allowing that to actually play out in a highly rigorous CEE context can actually show how the environmental assessment provisions of the Madrid Protocol can work and work well and and in that sense can strengthen those aspects of the system which um, you know which from time to time have been criticised in the past where you know different standards of CEEs have been failed by different countries and you know there's there's been some criticism as to whether the environmental assessment provisions of the Madrid Protocol are, are operating well or, you know, so in some ways, if this is done well, it could actually act as an exemplar of really rigorous and really well done environmental assessment and the process playing out well through the CEP, providing review and scrutiny of that, uh, regardless of which way this ultimately goes, whether Australia decides to proceed or decides not to proceed after it goes through that process, the actual process of doing this really well producing a really good CEE and seeing it go through the CEP and go through those processes and, and with appropriate rigour and appropriate scrutiny can actually strengthen the Madrid Protocol processes and system. What we, you mentioned um, whether the it might actually, uh, if this proposal proceeds, it might actually um, have some negative consequences in terms of tourism. Australia's already ruled out in its proposal the use of the aerodrome for tourist purposes. So that's very unlikely to be an issue. Would it enhance the potential for militarisation of the region 
in breach of Article 1. Certainly there's no plans or nothing being proposed by Australia that would suggest that the base be in any way used um, in military activities. The Royal Australian Air Force, I, I think, is envisaged would fly uh, transport flights into Antarctica just as it does into the Casey um, ice airstrip. But, of course, that type of use of military flights in order to supply um, Antarctic um, scientific logistics is is um, a completely um, a valid um, activity under, under the um, Antarctic Treaty. But, but anything beyond that has not been suggested. I mean, one thing we did mention in the, um, in the Aspie piece was that there could actually be some benefits for, say, fisheries compliance um, in the sense that you may be able to use a facility like this to run compliance and and surveillance aerial patrols of Southern Ocean fisheries. Um, But that's, of course, not a a militarisation. That's simply a a peaceful compliance activity in terms of compliance with fisheries law and CAMLA requirements uh, in terms of Southern Ocean fisheries. Yeah, but no, look, certainly in terms of the the Davis proposal, there's certainly nothing that would suggest that this is intended in any way to be any sort of uh, attempt at an Australian militarisation of Antarctica. Well, I wasn't really implying so much that Australia would would use this as a springboard for mass tourism or or militarisation, but as more if this sets off a chain of events where other countries start building um, year-round airstrips that would, you know, perhaps facilitate future directions that are hard to anticipate at this point. But uh, one of the things I was asking, Jeff, about this is that you mentioned these procedures within the Madrid Protocol um, that go through some sort of international review process under the ATS. Is there any mechanisms inside the ATS where other countries could block this on political grounds, calling them environmental grounds, but really being politically motivated. Is there anything in ATS that allows this? Or is this something that Australia, if it goes through all the right steps, could push forward with on its own? Yeah, look, that's, that's a good a good question, Eric. Um, the nature of the environmental assessment processes under the Madrid Protocol are that the country that's proposing a particular activity or a particular development uh, needs to produce the relevant comprehensive environmental evaluation if the development is going to have more than a minor or transitory impact. And they need to uh, file that uh, assessment with the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat, with the Committee on Environmental Protection under the Madrid Protocol. Typically what happens is that one or two countries uh, then take the lead to act as with an intercessional scrutinisation and looking at the at the CEE. Other countries that are interested will also join in and there'll be this, you know, um, intercessional sort of scrutiny of, of the assessment that's being carried out. And then ultimately the CEP at an ATCM, it meets um, at an ATCM and the particular CEE is then discussed in the full CEP meeting with all parties to the Madrid Protocol present. Um, countries that can then provide uh, feedback, uh, or, or firstly they hear from the, the intercessional uh, group that looked at the CEE, they sort of report their detailed findings in relation to their scrutiny of the CEE. Other countries, um, as I said, at the, at the CEP meeting can then provide their 
their um, scrutiny and input, which is then all noted by the CEP and, and ultimately um, goes into the CEP report that's then um, adopted by the ATCM. So that, um, I guess, you know, very rigorous and sort of high level uh, scrutiny of a comprehensive environmental evaluation occurs. That all then comes back to the proponent country that then looks at all that, I guess, feedback from the CEP and the ATCM and ultimately then has to respond to that in the final proposal they take forward for the project and file that response as a final comprehensive environmental evaluation with the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat. But I guess the key point here is, Eric, that Ultimately, it's the obligation of the proponent country to go through that process, but then it's ultimately the decision of the proponent country as to whether they proceed or not with the project. But in doing that, they have to take into account their international obligations under the Madrid Protocol, particularly Article 3 and the environmental principles that are contained in Article 3. And, you know, so they, they, they make the decision based upon that environmental assessment and based upon the feedback that's been received and based upon their obligations under Article 3 to make that balancing act or to, to achieve that balancing act that I mentioned earlier between environmental protection, limiting the environmental impact of any project that moves forward after the evaluation, um, and balancing um, environmental residual environmental impacts against the, you know, I guess, the benefits of the um, scientific um, and other benefits that will come out of the particular development. So Australia is obviously going through quite a bit of trouble with this, uh, all the administrative aspects, the all these evaluations, these environmental studies, and uh, well, is perhaps willing to put forward many billions of dollars in seeing this project through and perhaps along the way taking a lot of uh, criticism. So it, uh, I guess it is a quite a weighty decision. What's the time horizon behind this? Several more years of studies and, and discussions and then many more years of, if actually they decide to go forward this, of, of building this thing. So what sort of time horizon are we looking at here? Yeah, look, it's, it's on the um, Antarctic, Australian Antarctic Division website that the comprehensive environmental evaluation is under preparation. The terms of reference for that, um, there's a document on the Antarctic Division website uh, about that, which is dated about May last year. Yeah, it's a very large uh, job in terms of putting together a rigorous comprehensive environmental evaluation for a project of this scale. Off the top of my, my own head, you know, it'd, it'd at least be a, a year or two year long process of putting that type of comprehensive environment, environmental evaluation together. In the short term, a couple of years in terms of that type of evaluation being done and perhaps decisions being made by the Australian government, whether for or against. Uh, but then in terms of the actual timeline for the project, yet the nature of the type of construction here that Australia is proposing is a like a paved concrete airstrip. So uh, that would involve the construction of sort of large concrete pavers um, here in Australia and then transporting them down to, to Davis and then, you know, laying them out to form the um, the 2.7 kilometre long runway, that whole process, the, the time frame we're talking about when this would be, um, you know, taking its first flights is 2040. So we're looking, you know, just shy of a couple of decades in order to to get this all constructed and, and up and going. A, a part of that is, as I said, the nature of the construction process. It probably could be done quicker if other 
construction techniques were adopted, perhaps, you know, something like bitumen, that that probably would be quicker. But I think the type of project that Australia is looking at here is, you know, minimises environmental impact during construction and, you know, would have you know, very good longevity, you know, in terms of the concrete surface as opposed to, you know, say bitumen or gravel surfaces, which are a lot less robust. The way the project's framed, at least at the moment, it's a high quality with a lot of longevity, but, you know, expensive and a long time to build. So we'll have plenty of time to talk more about this issue as it uh, develops. And I hope, uh, Jeff, that you'll be available to keep us up to date on this. And I'll certainly be sure to put in the show notes a link to this uh, report that you co-authored with uh, Marcus Howard and Anthony Bergen on the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, website to keep uh, listeners up to date on that. And also, I encourage listeners to go and uh, look at some of these um, more critical articles against this uh, project on environmental ground just to get a balanced uh, outlook on uh, on this uh, very um, large-scale, long-term project of constructing an aerodrome in uh, near the Davis Station. Jeffrey McGee, Associate Professor at University of Tasmania, expert on Antarctic law. Thanks very much for once again joining us here on the Polo Geopolitics Podcast. Okay, thanks, Eric. Nice to talk to you again. <laughs>